great to have you. Oh man, right on. Thank you for coming. Uh, brunch is always an option, so it means a lot that you're here. Okay. The church is built today into these things called denominations. There's these different streams of the Christian church. I grew up in the Southern Baptist denomination, which is theologically rather close to the neighborhood in which this local body emerged from. However, there's a stark difference in the practice of our liturgy. Baptists are heavily influenced by Stoicism. If you're very excited, you may clap, but not too loud. (laughs) And if the service goes longer than 60 minutes, two weeks in a row, they form a pastoral search committee. (laughs) So if you're from a denomination of Christianity with a 60-minute liturgy, and right now you feel a sense of panic that we're 46 minutes into an hour, and I've just got on the stage, don't worry, the chairs are super comfortable. My name is Mike McCarg, and no one can spell it, so they dubbed me Science Mike to improve my Google rankings. I'm really appreciative of that. And the fact that I start introducing myself with Google AdWords lets you know that I am a nerd. I'm a real, live, legit nerd. And I don't mean like Mark Zuckerberg, like a nerd playboy billionaire. I mean like people beat me up in the 80s, nerd. Uh, Let's see, let me do a couple of nerd credentials. I can code in multiple languages. Uh, I have not one but two VR headsets. Um, And often my wife will, you know, I'll have my office door closed, I work from my home, and I'll be in there having some time to myself, like guys do, and she'll open the door and catch me playing a video game. So, like, I'm an actual real nerd. Uh, In fact, there's a game called Overwatch that I'm afraid is going to make my next book late to the publisher. (laughs) So here's the problem. I love science. Now, that's not a problem if people call you Science Mike, but it is a problem because I understand stuff scientifically. So, for example, I realize the fact that I have a beautiful, deep, baritone voice means that you're going to ascribe a little bit of additional attention and authority to what I say just because your brain responds that way. Human brains favor deeper voices. And then we compound that by putting me on a stage where the entire time I'm above the midline of your vision and you have to look up to see me. Now, this is really good for tall people. This is why societies literally pay tall people more for the same work than anyone else. But I'm on this stage, and usually on this stage, a man of God comes and tells you a sermon that has been inspired and they've done beautiful analysis of this text that we hold as sacred called the Bible. And I have to tell you that's not happening this morning. I'm a dude telling a story and sharing his opinion. So you have total permission this morning to take things that encourage you and affirm you and hold on to them. And the things that sound crazy and offensive, you can go, that guy doesn't even have a college degree and he's not ordained, right? You don't have to hold on to anything I say this morning And I say that because I want you to feel safe. Because I know in this room right now, we have people who are theologically conservative, theologically progressive, and who think theology is not a thing at all. We have seekers, and we have skeptics. We have the faithful, as we call them. And we have atheists, who in my opinion, are faithful to their own thing. So I just want you to know, wherever you are this morning, you are welcome And I am so glad you're here. So, as mentioned, we'll do a couple commercials, then we'll start the talk. I have two podcasts. One is called Ask Science Mike, where we do Q&A for questions every week. The other is the Liturgist podcast with my friend Michael Gunger. Uh, Both of those are far more popular than I ever thought they would be. It's actually a little freaky, because now whenever I meet someone, uh, they're like, wow, it's so weird hearing your voice and seeing your face. Uh, guess a radio thing. And then I have this book that's kind of like the talk I'm about to give, but deeper, coming September 13th, called Finding God in the Waves. It's about how I lost my faith. And then that's really nice to applaud for an advertisement. Thank you. <laughs> so what do you say we give an actual talk, right? Uh, I want to introduce you to my dad. This is my dad uh, on his tractor. And that's my cousin Liam sitting in his lap when he was a baby. This is an older picture because I'm a guy and I don't take many pictures. And I, here's what i got to tell you about my dad. i got to tell you about my past, right? So uh, I was a nerdy kid. Like, I really liked science fiction, and I really liked 
playing inside in air conditioning. And my dad played like football and basketball and baseball. And not only did my dad play football, he played offense and defense. And he played in the marching band at halftime. <laughs> That's a true story. Uh, in fact, on this very tractor, dad was clearing some timber once, and he ran over this big tree, like a, like a tree, and a branch about the size of my arm pops up under the tractor, still attached to the tree, and just stabs him right through his abdomen, enters and exits his body. So dad has, I love the reaction, it's on purpose, okay, it gets worse, like put your seatbelt on. So dad's quick, he puts the tractor in neutral so it doesn't tear him in half, right? And he tries to pull the branch out, and he can't get the branch out because it's attached to a tree that's pinned under his tractor. So he puts the tractor in reverse and then slowly backs the tree out of his body, at which point he begins to bleed profusely, right? Because he has an arm-sized hole in his torso. No cell phone coverage. Our farm's in the middle of nowhere. So he takes this bumpy road back to his barn, he packs his wound with shop towels and duct tapes it closed. <laughs> Realizes there's no time for a hospital to get to his barn, gets in his truck, drives himself to the rural hospital where they remove his improvised dressing, and a nurse faints. <laughs> okay, so like my dad is this rugged man. Like... He's made of leather and steel. And I often get alcohol and Q-tips and clean my computer keyboard because I can't stand to type if my fingers are dirty, right? <laughs> so if I'm painting a picture of, like, Dad's here and I'm here on other sides of the nerd-jock divide, then you're getting the point of this gruesome story. Now, as, as different as I felt from my dad, we always loved each other. Uh, he didn't understand why I screamed whenever he threw a football at me, but there was some sense of love in our relationship. And, you know, I've, I, I idolized my dad. I honestly did. He was, he, he sang at church. He's our music minister at every church I ever went to. And he taught me what it meant to be a husband and a father. And I followed in his footsteps. Dad worked hard and was a director at, at, at age 25 in his work, and I became a corporate vice president when I was 25. I got married at a young age to a beautiful woman, uh, much like my father did. Uh, I became a deacon in the Southern Baptist Church, the youngest deacon at my church, which is the same thing my father did. Can you see how I'm trying to step in those much larger footprints as I walk through life? Which is why it was so confusing when dad called a family meeting and told us that he was leaving mom because he fell in love with another woman and the heart wants what the heart wants. It devastated me. Like I had no inkling something was coming. I thought that this family meeting might be about a job change or somebody had cancer. But the fact that my parents' 30-year union was ending... Well, that was, that was never in my Excel spreadsheet for life. And I, I had this crisis because here's my dad, this authoritative alpha male, and here's me, like, as beta as they come. But I knew what God, what God said about marriage was not the heart wants what the heart wants. I was sure the scripture painted a different tale. And so, like... I got this kind of, this fire in my bones. And I realized that I had to speak on God's behalf to my dad. And I said, Dad, are you a Christian? He was very confused. He said, yeah, of course. I said, then your life is not your own. It was bought with a price, right? You can't get married just because you fell in love with another woman. As long as mom's willing to have you, biblically, you have to reconcile. I said, Mom, do you want to stay married? Like, and re realize, here I am like, I've been married less than 10 years, and I've come into this family meeting and started calling the shots. This is a weird dynamic. Mom, do you want to stay married? 
if he'll reconcile, of course I do. Congratulations, Dad. No divorce. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. You and I are going to become accountability partners. That's a Baptist word for asking personal questions all the time. And I'm going to lead you in a Bible study, and we're going to kick the devil out of your life. And everything's going to be great. Uh, and it would have worked if it weren't for those kids and their dog. Um, sorry, that's a Scooby-Doo reference, and I'm getting old, and people don't know about Scooby-Doo anymore. Uh, so I am a nerd, as I've mentioned probably 25 times so far. And we can't carry the day with physical conflict, right? If I got into a fight with my wife or my 11-year-old daughter, I guarantee I would lose. Like, physical confrontation is not an option for a nerd. How do nerds win the day? More data. We know so much more than our opponent. We understand their position better than they do. We understand our position. And we understand six other intersecting positions that nobody else has thought of yet because all we do is read. So I knew I already had the answer to my parents' problem in the Holy Bible, the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Now, here's the problem. I knew, even though I read the Bible all the time, I didn't know the whole thing. Because when I read the Bible, I read it as part of a Sunday school program, as part of a Bible study program. I'd never actually started at Genesis and worked through Revelation and read the entire book. And what if... The answer to my parents' marriage was in some obscure corner of Leviticus, and I hadn't read it. Then the failure of their marriage would be on me, because I'd failed as a follower of God. So I looked up an annual Bible reading plan, and I realized it wasn't very much reading to read 1 365th of the Bible. So I decided to read 3 400. 65th of the Bible every day. And when you do that, you can read the Bible four times in a year. It's just fractions. <laughs> it's really like the, the kids' program would not have struggled with that analogy. So, because <laughs> they do it every week. I just read a little bit more of the Bible. Now, people are like, oh my gosh, you read the Bible four times a year. You must have like stayed up all night every night. No, I just devoted my lunch break to reading the Bible. That was it. And uh, it was amazing what happened when I dived this deep into the Bible. I became an atheist. <laughs> That's a little bit of a left turn that people don't expect. But I'm serious. More than anything else, Bible study led me to atheism. And now there's a panicky energy in half of the room. <laughs> that we will disclose. Here's why. I was taught the Bible was the inerrant, infallible Word of God that where it spoke to history, it was completely historically accurate. And where it spoke to science, it was completely historically accurate. And I sat down on day one of my Bible reading plan and read Genesis 1 and discovered that in the eyes of the authors of Genesis, trees... You've seen trees. We're made before stars. You've seen stars. If you understand anything about physics and cosmology, that's a deeply troubling idea because cosmology tells us that from an initial singularity, the universe emerged and eventually made these great clouds of hydrogen and helium that gravity and electromagnetism worked on, mainly static electricity, believe it or not, the same thing that makes your socks stick together, also created the first stars. So they clump together, and they get bigger and bigger clumps, and eventually there's so much weight and gravitational pressure that fusion happens in the bellies of these clouds, and the first stars are born. Eventually, those stars, as they fuse elements, exploded, created really heavy elements, and the next generation of stars could have planets Eventually, you had a lot of stars with planets covered in organic chemicals like the Earth, and you get trees. According to science, trees are made of stars. I was trying to see how many people are asleep yet. Okay, everybody's <laughs> awake. This is incredible. Okay, 
Trees made of stars according to science. Genesis, trees made before stars. So, I started to pray. God, kind of confused here. I thought we had this one settled, the whole how the world was made. When I figured out old earth creationism made a lot of sense in grade school. Uh, what's going on here? And God said, Mike, I am God. You're a dude. <laughs> Scientists, also dudes. Can you hold it in your mind that maybe I have it all figured out and science does not yet? I was like, wow, God, that's a really excellent point. And very concise as well. So <laughs> I'm just going to keep reading the Bible. So I went to Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 told me again how the world was made. I was like, wait, I just, I just read this. This is really familiar. I guess this is really, God really wants us to remember how the world was made, as we told us twice. But Genesis 2 laid out a different sequence of events than Genesis 1. And now, like, whoa, I can handle, like, science has got to catch up with God eventually, but God doesn't have to catch up with God like, God wrote the Bible. So why is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 different? So facing a crisis that prayer would not solve, I consulted the oracle, the expert, the one we all go to in times of confusion, the great and mighty Google. <laughs> and I typed Genesis 1, Genesis 2, contradiction. I didn't actually type like that because that's ridiculous, but it looks good on stage. And Google came up with these... Biblical apologists, super helpful, first hit. Biblical apologists told me that Genesis 1 was about the creation of the cosmos and of the earth itself, and Genesis 2 was about how the Garden of Eden was populated. Oh, there's no conflict, piece of cake. Right on, good job, Google. Wait, Genesis 1 says, here's how everything was made. Genesis 2 starts by saying, here's how... Everything was made. Like, I'm not a great author, but if, like, I wrote a blog post, I would have written, here's how everything was made, here's how the Garden of Eden was populated. Like, <laughs> are these apologists saying I'm a better writer than the Almighty? Like, is that... So I went back to my Google, because I'm like, surely there's got to be another argument. And there was in something called the Skeptics Annotated Bible. These are atheists who critique the Bible. And their answer was, the Bible was written by ignorant people in the desert 3,500 years ago who didn't know anything about cosmology. An idea that I found both incredibly offensive and logical. <laughs> Put me in a real state of tension, right? Now remember, I am on day one of my Bible reading plan. <laughs> I've been reading the Bible for about 20 minutes. So I keep reading the Bible. And the deeper I get, the more confused I get. I find these numbers that don't seem to agree with each other. And then I start to find, like, moral things that concern me. Like, I get to the, the story of the Exodus. And I, I hear Moses following God's leadership to enter the promised land. And Moses can't take it all the way. He says, uh, Joshua takes over, and, and God says, okay, you're going to go into this land, and, and you're going to kill all the soldiers. Well, of course you are. That's what you do. And all the women and all the children, and make sure you burn the livestock. And I was like, what? Wait, God is ordering genocide? God. God is love. God who sent his son to die on a cross because God so loved what? The world is now sending an army for ethnic cleansing? And I thought about my kids. And listen, I'm not always the best guy, but don't you go after my kids because of something I did. Oh, I was so grieved. I had an Excel spreadsheet with 3,500 scriptural contradictions in it with the intention of going through and working through them one by one. But I can I tell you, the more I read, the more saddened I felt, the more confused, the more lost. And let me be clear, 
I read this Bible because I loved God and I trusted God. We have a tendency in the church to say that when people face doubt, it's because of a sin problem. It's because of a lack of faith. But I started reading the Bible because of my absolute faith that God was in control of the world, that God alone could save my parents' marriage. And when God failed to do so, I was angry. To the point, one day I was praying, and I said, God, I don't even know why I'm praying. You aren't real. And some people lose God, and it's like taking off a sweater that doesn't fit anymore, and they feel liberated, and they feel free, and they feel comforted. But for me, watching God die was like watching a loved one struggle with cancer and take their last breath. I have never been so sad or felt so alone as when I realized the God I'd pledged my life to didn't exist. And for two years, I pretended to be a Christian while I was not. I taught Sunday school. I played praise music. I led my oldest daughter to Christ as an atheist. One day she's going to read my book and have a real head trip. Uh, Eventually it didn't work, this pretending. My wife could figure out what something was wrong. She confronted me. I confessed. She felt alone. We agreed it was best to tell no one because our community was all entirely Southern Baptist. Not real comfortable with atheist deacons. (laughs) So she agrees to keep my secret, and she does for two weeks. And uh, then she told my mom, and my mom confronted me about my unbelief, and then we had this, like, epic battle in a field. I mean, almost literally. And uh, my mom says, you just have all the answers. So... I'm going to pray that God moves so powerfully in your life that you can't deny that it's God. I was like, that's great. I'm going to ask Santa Claus for a pony. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't say that out loud because I don't like getting hit by my mom. (laughs) So what I said instead was, thank you for caring for me, Mom. But I knew nothing was going to happen. Like, what's God's going to swoop down and prove himself? I've been asking for that for two years. Like, it's not happening. So completely coincidentally, two weeks later, I got invited to NASA... Uh, that's me at NASA, and if I look like excited and terrified, it's because there's a big yellow handle under that seat, and they're like, hey, you can take pictures in this research fighter jet, but if you touch the yellow handle, the ejection seat is armed, and you will die. You will eject right into the ceiling, and we'll have to clean it up, and there'll be paperwork, so don't touch the yellow handle. Obviously, I did not. But the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm like, don't touch the yellow handle. Don't touch the yellow handle. And NASA was amazing because, you know, they put robots on Mars. You know what I mean? Like Facebook, ooh, we can stream live video. That's cool. Google, we can search human knowledge. That's cool. NASA, we put people on other planets. Like, that's just like nerd alpha. Just, (laughs) anyway, I'm really digressing with little time left in the talk. So... Also, while I'm at NASA, I get invited to a pastor's conference. Now, this is weird because I'm an atheist. (laughs) But I go to this pastor's conference because it's not about pastoring. It's about creativity. And who doesn't want to be more creative, right? So I uh, go to this conference, and it's great. They do talk about creativity until they start talking about atheism, at which point they all sound like like I'm at Liberty University, right? Like just... (laughs) Sorry, Liberty grads. You're a good whipping boy for that joke. So they get this weird, like, insecure overconfidence. Do you know what I'm talking about? They just start, like, slamming on atheism. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm a Southern Baptist atheist. And (laughs) you can't say all this stuff. Like, atheists aren't bad people. They're trying to leave, like, the world better than they found it. And I went in all this science, and I don't have enough time to tell you that whole part of the story. And... Uh, I basically told them off. I ended my rant with, so how can any person who understands how the universe works possibly believe in any God? 
And they thanked me. They thanked me. Guys, when someone in vulnerability releases that they don't believe anymore and there's some hurt associated with that and there's some pain and maybe some anger, guess what? Now is not the time to quote scripture. Now is not the time for a holy rebuke. Right now is the time for a hug. Right now is an affirmation of your relationship that in no way is your affinity and love for them predicated on their faith, that your love for them is based on them. Because my road back, where this story went, was paved by the gracious reactions of my wife, my mother, and 50 pastors in the living room in Laguna Beach, California. Because that night, we had the Eucharist. And I walked up to shake the pastor's hand, to be like, good job today. And as I reached out to shake his hand, he held out a piece of bread and he says, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And I had this kind of existential crisis because there was no body broken for me because Jesus is a mythical figure that never existed. And there's a lot of social pressure right now. The easiest thing to do is to take this bread, but I can't take the bread because if I take the bread... 50 pastors go back to their congregations and talk about how they saw an atheist get saved and I become an urban myth somebody's grandmother forwards around. Like, no, thank you. And I was going to turn around and leave until I heard a voice. And that voice said to me, audibly, like by home, behind my shoulder, like I heard it as you're hearing my voice right now. I was there when you were eight, and I'm here now. And let me tell you a confession. I was a nerd, and I didn't have any friends in school. Any. Zero. No friends from kindergarten to fifth grade. All I had was tormentors at different levels. I know what it's like to get stuffed in a locker you're too fat to fit into. I know what it's like to have softballs bounced off your head until they leave a mark. And I know what it's like when the recess bell sounds to run into the trees to hide from the other kids and to be lonely. And so in those trees alone every day, I would talk to the only person who would listen, my best friend, Jesus. You see, when I first heard the news that students had gone to Columbine High School and opened fire. My reaction was not, how could this happen? My reaction was, why did this take so long? Because there was not a day in my later school experience that I didn't think about finding a gun and taking it to school to kill myself in front of my classmates so that they would know how much they'd hurt me. Why didn't I? Because Jesus loved me, this I knew. For 22 minutes during recess, every day at school, there was someone who loved me. But as an adult, I decided my best friend was a myth. <laughs> and so in honor of that memory, I took the bread and I dipped it into the cup and I ran from the room. Now, if that was a film, is that not like the best happily ever after we're getting the band back together kind of moment? But it wasn't for me. That was the start of a painful journey because that moment led to another on a beach where I stood in the presence of God. But none of that answered my questions. None of it made the Bible make sense. None of it helped me understand how people can suffer and die how we can have cancer and tsunamis with a God who is all-powerful and loving, none of those questions were answered. But what I have found is somehow in science we do find a God that lives not in our hearts but in our brains. That when people submit to this great mystery of faith, when they believe you are a good Father and you love us, they are changed in ways that shows up in our brains. 
that they become less stressed, that they become more generous, that they become more loving, that it's easier for them to forgive themselves and others. They get better memory, focus, and concentration. And in fact, believing God loves you has been clinically demonstrated to be therapeutic for dementia and Alzheimer's. This idea that God and faith and love of beauty is bad, an idea that comes from the new atheist, has no grounding in science. And in my messy journey, what I've learned is we have these two lenses, science and faith. One tells us facts about the world, that if you want to build an iPhone or put a robot on Mars, this is your guy. And over here, we have our faith, this beautiful way of finding meaning and context among all those facts. And we hold them in opposition to each other. We weaponize them and fight each other using science and faith. But what God has shown me in the last few years is if we take these lenses and look through them together, somehow the world actually becomes more clear. I have found science gives us facts and faith gives us meaning. And in the intersection of the two, we find the beautiful breath of God. Thank you. Okay, wow, great question, one I get a lot. Scientifically speaking, what do we have to say about an afterlife? Not a lot. There's a couple of encouraging things in science. One, it appears that our brains are designed and oriented, that our passing is a peaceful process. Some features in the brain make us think that a tunnel of light, being surrounded by those that you were nearest to, uh, that um, feeling a sense of peace instead of fear are all neurological features of the brain. We also know um, that in a completely materialistic, atheistic worldview, there is such a thing as an afterlife. Why? Because your genes and your ideas live on. The people who knew you the most carry a high-resolution neurological map of you. They can really, with high fidelity, guess how you would answer a question because their brain holds an image of you. Now, this is more like a mosaic than a photograph. But um, my grandmother died when I was an atheist, and I had to come to terms with honoring her and loving her without an idea of the afterlife. So scientifically speaking, uh, proof of heaven, I haven't seen any. But when we open ourselves up in the practice of faith, we often connect to something that feels like a brighter, more beautiful reality than the one we live in every day. The, my moment in God's light, the profound sense of peace, love, and connection I felt certainly makes me think when all this ends for us, we stand in a reunification with our source that we meet God again. What does that look like? Is that pearly gates and streets of gold? Or is that a first century metaphor? I don't know. What I do know is at this point in my life, I trust God enough to not worry about it. That, um, that my faith is most interesting, that Jesus is most compelling, not when I contemplate what happens when I die, but when I contemplate what happens when I live today in the here and now. There is plenty of healing that must happen in this world to keep us so busy there's no time to think about the next. Mm, that's great. Um, how would you describe your earliest impressions of God? My earliest impressions of God um, would be like a man with a big white beard on a thrown in the clouds. I mean, I was a Southern Baptist. Like, I went to church in the womb. Uh, so I had this you really... You the Baptist. Yeah, I was an early, early impression of God. And I think that's beautiful. You know, we have this thing to, like, minimize the storybook notions of God, but neurologically, guess what? Those are the most appropriate ideas about God for children. 
Children can't contemplate abstract ideas like democracy or peace, right, or God. They need their ideas to have a face. So you can show them a judge, a policeman, a pastor, and when they're young, God needs to have a face. So I don't regret the way that a, a God that was very human-like in quality uh, got me started on path toward faith, which, by the way, the Bible's written the same way. Our earliest notions of God were of someone who walked in a garden with us. And I think it's rather salient that this, this Genesis especially, which was probably assembled in a time of Babylonian exile, but was compiled from earlier sources, turns out to be the most neurologically appropriate way to teach humans about God. How fascinating. Hmm, that is good. Uh, apparently this one only took a few seconds to hit. Um, so what are your thoughts on the dinosaurs? What are my thoughts on the dinosaurs? Wow, they're amazing. Dinosaurs were these incredible precursors to birds. They had a dominion over this planet for an era of time that makes our current period of apex food chain positioning look like the blink of an eye. They were super adapted to their environment, um, and they didn't need big, giant brains to do it all. Um, now, let's remember, dinosaurs had multiple geologic eras on this planet, so they're not some, like, there's more diversity in dinosaurs than there certainly are in modern mammals, right? They're not some lumped-together group. What do I think about them? I think that uh, they were part of the chain of events in God's creation that led to us. And uh, now I don't think dinosaurs and humans were ever on the planet at the same time. Uh, and if that's a core idea of faith for you, remember I don't have a college degree. <laughs> All right, that's good. You know, uh, speaking of modern technology, uh, what's this thing called Google Keep? This is an amazing thing. <laughs> like, I'm not just looking at text messages. They're all getting funneled. They're being sent to me. Skip down to number 12. It's right really on. good. It's magic. It's amazing. <clears throat> I haven't read this one yet. This is cold turkey. Trusting my people. I've always wanted to have people. You know what say? <laughs> I'm going to have my people get with your people. Science, through carbon dating and other methods, shows that the earth is billions of years old. Mm -hmm. But history and the Bible shows the earth is significantly younger than that. Hmm. I would say uh, interpretation of such. Would you suggest that the time difference between science and the Bible is due to the fact that God exists outside of time? Okay, I totally agree God exists outside of time. Uh, that's actually one of the most encouraging ideas for me is when I look in physics and I look at relativity in relativity, we understand that all space-time coordinates exist at the same time. So the start of my talk is still happening. Lunch is already happening, right? Come on. It's all happening at the same time. An afterlife in that notion is a somewhat simplistic idea that's attached to what it's like to be on a roller coaster as opposed to stand next to a roller coaster and watch it run, right? Uh, if relativity is correct, and we have a lot of reason to believe that it is, then our source, our creator, and this, what sustains that system simply cannot be tied to the same temporal reference frame that we are. Totally agree God is timeless. When we look inside the roller coaster track, though, science has terrific reason to state that the earth is very ancient. And you can easily secularly discuss why history doesn't extend as far back as geologic history, people haven't been around very long, right? The distortion between how long civilization and modern hominids have existed on the planet and the biblical account is not that different, maybe one order of magnitude, right? Um, so how do I reconcile that? How do, I, how do I make that work? Um, I think the, the earth is ancient. I think, first of all, when you look at Genesis, there's a word in Hebrew which is yom, Y-O-M. That word is translated day in Genesis 1. In other parts of the Bible, it is translated differently. It can mean months or weeks or even eras of time. And I imagine that were God to come down from the heavens in front of a man in a desert in an early agrarian society and explain, 
quantum physics, general relativity, and Big Bang cosmology, it would do just like this. You know why? Because if I did that in this room, it would probably do just like this, and you're living in 2016. I think God always tells us what we need to know in order to follow and to serve, right? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and I don't think that means we need to gather mustard seeds literally, and that will embody the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus told stories that illustrated greater truths, and I think in the same way, Genesis 1 is a sacred, beautiful story God used to illustrate a deeper truth about creation and humanity's role within it. Mm. You know why uh, you can't use metaphors with kleptomaniacs? <laughs> no. Because they're always taking things literally. <laughs> Dad jokes. Oh, man, I love them. Did you say dad jokes? Dad or? jokes. Oh, yeah, yeah, good. No, not bad. Dad. Okay, thanks. Dad jokes make the world go round. Yeah, there's... Thanks. And That's... teenagers' eyes roll everywhere. Right. Are there are a couple of great ones on here. Um, what about life on other planets? And if we find life on other planets, what do you think that has to do with, with God and our story of God? There are about 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. Uh, we're discovering through a couple of satellites we've launched that almost all stars have planets, plural. Planets are far more numerable than our, our most optimistic guesses. Uh, I am almost certain that life exists on other planets right now. The downside is that space is huge. Um, a light year is about six trillion miles. Tri trillion? Trillion miles? The closest star is 4.24 light years away. Uh, traveling with the fastest means available to us, forget that. Means we think we might be able to do in 100 to 200 years. The closest star is probably 60 to 70,000 years away. I think there's a very good chance there's life on other planets and we'll never find it and they'll never find us. Now, if we do luck out and one of our uh, candidates in our own solar system, there, we, there's a possibility there's at least microbial life on some of the moons in our solar system. What would that do to my faith? M my faith, it would affirm it. Because I believe in a God who is so creative that... He can't stop creating. That our universe was not created in some static state. That Genesis illustrates a creation that was not only made, but by the act of itself continues to create trees, make more trees, fish, make more fish. People love making more people. <laughs> and this is, this is a God who is so creative and so confident that he doesn't mind sharing the creative process, that we are given an opportunity to shape the creation that we were put into, an opportunity, I dare say an invitation, to shape this world more like the kingdom of heaven or not. And it is no trouble for me to imagine that that's a deal God made multiple times. This is an interesting one, too. So we have the worldview that we find within Scripture and part of that includes kind of um, demonic activity, uh, people being demonized and such. So in terms of what you know about neurological science, does, does that demonization or possession uh, relate to something going on in the brain, something going on spiritually? What a well-timed question. For most of my time as a believer, again, I haven't given a lot of credence to spiritual warfare as an immaterial concept. I thought this was a metaphor we were using to describe germ theory, mental illness, and I still think that's the best case you can put forward with science. Um, and if I'm answering scientifically, then I say we're talking about neurology. We're talking about bodies. We're talking about germs. Some of the experiences I have in meditation, in mysticism, 
some of the accounts I hear from people I trust. Um, maybe there's more to it. Maybe, maybe we do wage a war against things unseen. Mm. Um, so that has all kind of logical and philosophical problems, though. We, it, it, who is God if these agents are able to run, run willy-nilly through reality? Why does God allow it? Why, it, it? I don't think we have good theological answers to those questions. I guess I'm rambling to say I'm more open to that mystery than I've been in the past. Um, but I, I don't have any good answers. And if I look at science, I feel like 99.99999% of events I hear about have a completely plausible materialistic explanation. Uh, and yet... I have a friend who uh, was addicted to heroin, which we understand is a serious neurological dependency that upsets the balance of neurotransmitters in the brain as an incredibly difficult thing to recover from using modern medicine. And he had an encounter with what he believes is an angel that cast out a demon from him, and he stopped using heroin and has been clean for a number of years. Um, and I think people like my mom, like my pastor, who look at this as not as a metaphor, but as a way of describing reality, uh, find stories like that really compelling. Gotcha. So I just wanted to say... By the way, if you haven't noticed, I'm super comfortable ending a response with another question mark. <laughs> I like that. I think Jesus does that a lot, too. So, uh, just so you know, we've, we've made it through about a quarter of the questions. Um, so, we're not, not everything that has been sent we're going to be able to get to today. There is, uh, Ask Science Mike is a podcast you can listen to, and I'm sure there are questions that you can send that he may or may not uh, get to, make, I mean, making no promises um, uh, for him. So, maybe, uh, maybe just one more um, I know I, I can appreciate, not, not, I don't really understand relativity, okay. but I can appreciate the general idea, e equals mc squared, Einstein, smart, all that. <laughs> and and I've, I've read um, Boethius, the, the medieval uh, you know, philosopher, theologian, and he made the same argument way before Einstein about God being outside of time. And I appreciate the fact that your talk's still going on, and I'm already having lunch, but I'm not really feeling the fact that I'm right. already having lunch. Absolutely. I said all that just to get there. Um, so many, many believe uh, that everything happens for a reason. Hmm. Uh, do you agree or disagree? And if so or how, you, do you think um, it's a way for us to learn and grow, or do you think there's chance and... We just have to respond or thoughts. Two-pronged answer. First prong, totally everything happens for a reason. Proton's going to proton. <laughs> Electron's going to electron, right? Photon's going to photon. Physics is going to do what physics does. And in that view of the world, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Physics. How comforting is that? Everybody feel warm and fuzzy right now? All right, yes. An object in motion tends to remain in motion unless an outside fork acts upon it. Mm. Glad I came to church this morning. Um, for most of my life, I understood God and therefore creation as something that had to be mastered. But a friend of mine named Morgan says that God makes a terrible math problem. I've said it that uh, when you make God a Rubik's Cube and you want blue all on one side and green all on one side, A, you never succeed, and B, you get bored and lost and lonely. We have a tendency to look at life's biggest questions as matters of urgency and the things we find through the sweat of our brow, looking through scripture and philosophy and our experiences, we clutch like diamonds we pulled from the earth. We guard them jealously 
and we punch anybody that tries to take them away from us. Possessive. And what I have found in my encounters with God the last few years is there is a completely different posture we can take. I wake up every morning and realize, I didn't do this. I didn't make this day. I didn't wake myself up. I'm going to take another breath full of oxygen molecules that I didn't do anything to create. I exist in a gift. And then instead of holding what I learned about the world as these diamonds that are mine, 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 like a seagull in Finding Nemo, <laughs> instead I've learned to just open my hands and be receptive to what God may have to show me today. And when that happens, these little butterflies land on my hands. I'm using a metaphor. I don't literally mean butterflies. <laughs> I mean truths and insights and feelings and discoveries, and I just enjoy them as long as they're there. If I try to grab them, they're going to fly away or I'm going to kill them. But if I just hold my hand open, does everything happen for a reason? I don't know. What I know is I often find a reason, and when someone else faces a challenge so painful and so atrocious, so difficult that I can't find words, I learned the true value of silence and solidarity and love. Because whether or not there is a reason to everything, my faith tells me there's always a response. And that response is love, peace, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. And against those things, there is no law. So can we draw the kingdom of heaven near by living lives of radical love? I believe that we can. Mm. Amen. We're going to let that um, serve as our benediction today. I pray that um, you all go out in peace and be a people of peace. And may your lives this week produce the fruit of love and kindness and joy and patience. Because against this, there is no law. Mm. Can you thank uh, Mike for being with us one more time? Uh, don't forget to check out uh, Ask Science Mike and The Liturgist. And don't forget to, probably can already pre-order that book, I imagine, on Amazon. All right, so go in peace. God bless you.